0: Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world, or if you call Indianapolis home, I just want to thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. How are you doing today? You good? Good. Good to see you. Man, I want to welcome all of our guests and first-time visitors across all of our campuses, wherever you may be joining us from. We're so glad to have you. Our mission as a church is to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. And the reason why we say it that way is because we believe that Jesus is the only one who can change anyone, therefore we want to get everyone to Him. And the reason why we're passionate about that is because of Mark chapter 2 where these four uh, ordinary guys, we don't even know their names, they're trying to get their friend to Jesus, their friend is paralyzed, Jesus is teaching in a house in Capernaum, it's packed, uh, the doorways are jammed, and so they show up, they can't get their friend to Jesus, and so they do the only rational thing you would do, go through the roof. And I love that, they just tear a hole in the roof of this house that they did not own, and I want to have that same kind of passion. And uh, I want to be able to get uh, people to Jesus because I know the power that that moment can have. And once we get you to Jesus, then we want to show you the pathway, give you some tools, help cheer you on in your personal and spiritual growth. Um, As your pastor and as a church, we cannot do growth for you we can show you the way and we can give you some tools and we can cheer you on and the first place i'd just love for you to begin is growth track and that's why we talk so much about it that's why we keep pointing you there it's an imperfect tool but it's a tool uh, to try to help you in your next step towards personal Growth. And my desire for you is that you would eventually come to see the church, not as just something you watch on a screen or some place that you attend occasionally when you can make it or a time where you just kind of sit back and kind of take it all in, uh, but that you would eventually come to see yourself as a part of this, that you would get on mission with Jesus and you would discover what it is that He's called you to uniquely do. And uh, man, I'm telling you that your church experience will just get a whole bunch better. When you jump in and begin to serve. And I was at the uh, downtown campus last Sunday night uh, working the lobbies. I took our guest speaker, Caleb Kaltenbach, which by the way, did you enjoy Caleb last week? Didn't Caleb do great? Man, that guy is so much fun to hang out with. Uh, He's a trip. But uh, we went down to the downtown campus. We're just kind of in the lobby, uh, working the lobby before and after services. And I had so many people come up to me and say, Hey, I just finished Growth Track and today is my first day to serve. And it was so cool to see that. And I want that for you too. Um, Today, I'm excited to uh, give you some some really uh, good news. Uh, A few weeks ago, I told you we're starting campus number five and six in Broad Ripple and in Fishers. And so today, I want to tell you who our Midtown campus pastor is going to be. Uh, The campus pastor role is really, really crucial. In fact, whenever we start a campus, we have to have the right campus pastor and we have to have a location or it's a no go. And uh, our campus pastors, they have to have the character and the competency and the calling. They've got to have the Trader's Point DNA, which is humble, hungry, healthy. And, uh, man, this individual has it. So I'm really excited to announce to you that our Midtown campus pastor is our very own Kyle Riley. So give it up for Kyle. Get a picture of him and his family. Uh, Kyle and his lovely wife Bree and their children, uh, their daughters Kendall and Corinne. And, uh, man, Kyle... Uh, Those of you that know Kyle, he is, and those of you who don't, he's our groups minister at our downtown campus, and he is just the epitome of a humble leader. Man, if you were just to Google humble leader, that picture comes up right there. Kyle is just, what I love about him is that he was involved in ministry long before he ever got a paycheck for it. He was just developing group leaders, coaching people. He's got so much talent, and yet he's so humble. And, uh, man, I'm thrilled for Kyle. I consider him to be a good friend. Uh, Two weeks ago, I preached the most challenging message of my life. Kyle was one of the first ones to reach out to me that morning and just say, Hey, bro, i got your back. I'm praying for you. I'm with you. And I just love his heart. Uh, And I trust his leadership so much, I want to go to the Midtown campus, right? I mean, I just want to... I want to follow him there. And so if you are interested uh, in uh, being part of the launch team of our Midtown campus, go to tpcc.org backslash launch team, and we would love to uh, get you connected to Kyle and to that uh, that team. Well, today we are uh, wrapping up this uh, series of messages we've been in called Asking for a Friend. So if you're just now joining us, basically what we've been doing over the last several weeks, a little bit of a different series. Uh, I've just been addressing some of the most common questions that I hear from you all on a regular basis. And I've said this before, I want to say it again, It's not because we believe we have all the answers, because we don't. And I know that I don't. But we put our trust in somebody who does. And that somebody has a name, His name is Jesus. We also believe that there are no questions that are out of bounds, that personal and spiritual transformation happen best when we can have honest conversations with a teachable spirit, Around really, really good questions. And so that's what we've been attempting to do. And this may be the conclusion of the series, but I sure hope it's not the end of the conversation. And really, what I wanna do, I've entitled today's talk, um, The Rest of the Questions. And really, what I wanna do is, I've got way more questions than I have time for, but I wanna try to get through as many of them as I can. This is a little bit of a different format today, it's not necessarily like a typical message. Uh, I'm just gonna plow through questions. And uh, these are questions that have come in. These are some of the most common ones that I've seen. And what I want to do, I want to frame up your expectations here because some of you, I know you, like you'll get to the end of this and go, you didn't satisfy me. And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to, all right? I'm not trying to resolve these questions. That would be arrogant. I'm trying to respond to them. And I do want to offer some response, get you thinking. You don't have to agree with me on everything. It might even cause more questions. But hopefully you'll have a good conversation with maybe your group this week or maybe around the dinner table with your family or with friends when you get together. I want to offer a response, and I want to offer a couple of resources. And I realize that some of these questions um, I could spend a whole sermon series on. So I hope you'll be patient with me. But let's just start plowing through these, see how many of these we can get through. Here's the first question. This is how it came in. How do you know when God is speaking to you? It is so hard for me to hear the Lord speaking in my life. What are some ways I can listen to him? And I love that question. It's a really great question. It's a vital question because we've all seen examples, either in our own time period or in throughout history, where people have done some crazy and destructive things in the name of God told me to. Uh, there's, that's how cults and wars get started. So, I think all of us need to be really super humble whenever we say things. And we got to say it really, we got to hold on to this loosely when we say, Well, God told me to. And how do you know? Like, how do you know God's speaking to you and it's not maybe uh, your subjective emotions or maybe the bad burrito you had last night? All right? How do you know? Well, Jesus was one time asked a very similar question in John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. You hear what Philip said? is saying here. Philip's saying, Jesus, we want to hear straight from the horse's mouth. We want to know who God is, and we want to know what he would say. And if you would just show him to us, then we would know. And I love Jesus' response. He replied in verse 9, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am? And then he says these powerful words, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am fully God. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And he says, if you want to know what God is like, then look at me. If you want to know what God would say, then listen to me. If you want to know, most importantly, how God feels about people, look at how Jesus interacted with people, and then you'll begin to know. So there's a lot of ways I could respond to this. I could talk about how God speaks to us through his spirit, and he does, and God speaks to us through his word, and he certainly does. God speaks and even affirms some things through other people, other godly people that love Jesus and they love you and they've got good character. Man, so many times God has used somebody else to say something to me that I really, really needed to hear. But I would say more than anything, man, get to know Jesus. And in, in the four biographies of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one that I would point you to is the Gospel of John, especially if you're new to this. And just start reading through the Gospel of John because John does just the best job of just telling us who Jesus is and revealing his heart. Uh, a few years ago, I did a message series just through the Gospel of John. I just plowed right through it verse by verse. And so you could actually use that supplemental to your Gospel reading of John, and, and that'll help you in some understanding some of the passages, maybe get a good Bible commentary. But just read through that. Here's why. Uh, God will never say anything to you that doesn't sound like Jesus. And so if you want to know what that would be, then spend lots and lots of time with Jesus. Get to know his words. A great resource for you uh, would be uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Man, this is a great little book. Put it on your reading list. If you've never read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, then you owe it to yourself to do so at least once uh, in your lifetime. That, that book is on my desk, and I pick it up often. Here's the next question. It's very similar. How do I go deeper in my relationship with Jesus. Maybe many of you have asked that, like you, you, you've come to know Christ, you've been attending church, you've, I'm assuming that you've made a decision to follow him as Savior and Lord, and so you're kind of like, well, you know, I've, I've kind of waded into the pool, and now I'm ready to, you know, go to the deep end, so how do I get deep? And I'd first of all just affirm your desire, man, way to go, like that you desire to, to get deeper and to grow in that relationship. However, I would say that whenever Jesus addressed this whole concept Jesus didn't necessarily use the word deeper. Jesus actually used a different word that I think captures it in a more healthy way. Jesus would talk about, instead of us going deeper, he would talk about us producing fruit. And I'm not talking about like apples and oranges. I'm talking about the fruits of the Spirit. There's a whole list of them found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things, these things are of the Spirit of God. And Jesus would say in John 15, verse 5, he says, Yes, I am the vine. And you are the branches. Here it is. Those who remain in me, those who stay connected to me, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think a better question than how do I get deeper is, am I producing fruit by staying connected to Jesus? Now, here's why this is so critical. Um, Some of you uh, maybe can relate to my story. I grew up in church, like from the time that I was an infant, which has positives and negatives. And part of the negative was that um, I just sort of kind of went through the motions. I was pretty lukewarm until I was about 18 or 19 years old when God really got a hold of me. And I was in Sunday school all the time. I was in church camp. I was in all kinds of discipleship groups. And, uh, and then even once God got a hold of me, then I took it to a whole other level. I remember my Christmas list my freshman year of college was just all theology books. <laughs> My parents thought I had a serious problem, and uh, maybe I did. And I, I just got all these books, and I just loved to read, and I was growing in my head knowledge of God. But my head knowledge of God was outpacing my love of God and my love for people who were far from God. The defin- or the description of that is called self-righteousness. And it's the one thing that Jesus couldn't stand. In fact, Jesus addressed this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says to a group of religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. In other words, he's like, man, you know the scriptures so well, but you've completely missed me. You've missed my heart. One time a Pharisee asked Jesus, they were trying to trap him. They said, hey, Jesus, tell us what is the most important command? Now, there were 613 of them, and they wanted Jesus to boil it down to one. And Jesus gave him two. Jesus replied in Matthew 22, he says, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. He puts it on the same playing field. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus says the entire law can be summed up. Not only that, the entire law hangs on these two commands. Love God and love others. So simply put, if you want to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus, then get on mission with Jesus. And Jesus' mission was always people who were far from God. You are as deep as the applications you apply to your life. Now, don't get me wrong. Jump into Bible studies, read the books, get the podcasts, go on the mission trips, all that stuff. It's incredible. Yet, you can do all of that. And I speak from firsthand experience. You can do all of that. And if you never apply what you've learned or you never let those things translate into love for people who are far from God, then you can know everything there is to know about the Bible And Jesus will still call you shallow. So your personal growth should always be for the sake of others and for the cause of Christ. Here's the next question. What makes cuss words so bad? Is there a list somewhere? You're trying to get me to cuss in a sermon, aren't you? I know... What you're doing? Hey, that's a that's a really great question because you know there isn't necessary like the, the, now the Bible's very clear with like don't use God's name in vain. It's like a misappropriated use of the word of the name of God because His name is holy. Uh, but uh, a lot of our four-letter words that we consider to be um, uh, curse words are really kind of culturally informed. There's, there's, there's not a list and the Bible that says you shouldn't say these four-letter words. And if you look at our culture today, there's some words like in Australia that they consider to be cuss words that we don't necessarily think to be cuss words and kind of vice versa. So a lot of our language is culturally informed and we have to take that into consideration. So the short answer to this, and this is, I get this like all the time because especially like when I'm on an airplane and I'm striking up a conversation with somebody next to me and they don't know who I am or what I do and all kinds of colorful language being thrown. And then they say, so what do you do? And I tell them, and man, they turn like three different shades of white and and then they magically clean up their language. And I'm just telling you, it is a good time. Just try it sometime. If you're bored on a flight and they say, what do you do? Just tell them you're a pastor and just watch. It's awesome. All right. Now, the short answer to this is that it's, it's not the words. And what I mean by that, it's not like, like certain words are kryptonite to God. Like if you, if you say them, then his ears melt off. Like that's not what we're talking about. It's the condition of our hearts. That's the big deal. In fact, Paul used some pretty spicy language. One time in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, let me give you an example of this. Paul writes, yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as, here it is, garbage, so that I could gain Christ. And you're like, well, that's not so bad. Well, we've cleaned it up. Like that word garbage there is translated in the Greek as skubala, which is a really fun word to say. So at all of our campuses, let's just say skubala out loud. Skubala. Yeah, you just cussed in church, all right? No, actually, you, you, you didn't. You said the word, but you didn't, Your heart, you, you didn't know the meaning of it. The skubula in the Greek was their most extreme word, like their strongest word for excrement. Possibly the equivalent of our four-letter word for it. It's the only time that uh, this word is ever used in the New Testament, which tells me Paul was pretty fired up. Paul let his emotions get the best of him. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was necessary. Jesus would say this, listen, what you say flows from what is in your heart. Jesus' half-brother James in chapter 3, verse 7 says, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says on down in verse 11, Does a spring of water bubble out from both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. The primary issue here isn't about trying to keep a tight rein on your tongue. It's about giving your heart to God. And saying, if I can get it out of my heart, it will stay out of my mouth. And that whole deal of like just be, paying, paying attention to not only what you say, but how it impacts the people around you is so important. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is just a bunch of scubula. All right? I mean, it's just... <laughs> It doesn't work. You know it. Now, I, I preached a series uh, earlier last year called Slip of the Tongue, and if you want to kind of dive more into that, uh, go back and re-watch that series, and hopefully that'll help you in some of this. Uh, next question, is it okay to drink alcohol and do legal drugs? All right. Um, so, are we in Colorado? All right. So, this, uh, <laughs> my son and I just got back from there a few weeks ago on a ski trip. We didn't even have to. It was just there. All right. So, now here's the deal. This, this fits into the category of a whole bunch of areas in our lives as Christ followers where we um, are basically asking this question. And you can apply this to a lot of different things. Are we allowed to? Um, here's maybe another way that you might ask it. Is it okay to? And whenever you and I ask those questions, what are we doing? We're asking, where's the line? So I can go right up to it. And that's not always wise. And I would say that this fits into that category. Now for starters, those of you especially that grew up in maybe in an extremely legalistic environment where all you heard was moralism, let me just say this. You have more freedom in Christ than what you probably realize. Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8 talk a lot about that. However, it also warns us not to use our freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. So short answer, the Bible never prohibits alcohol. But it does ask us to be thoughtful. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18, it says, Man, be careful how you live. And don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, Man, don't get drunk. Well, why? Because all kinds of bad things happen. You, you, you lose your memory. You, you break the law. You, you hurt people. You, you yourself get hurt. You're, you, you can't make wise decisions when you're in that state of mind. So instead of asking, is it okay? A better question that we need to start asking is, is it wise? And maybe you would even say, I've got freedom in Christ to do this, but you know what? It isn't wise. Maybe for all kinds of reasons. Because I have a genetic disposition for addiction. Maybe because... If I'm being really honest with myself, I'm actually using this to try to medicate maybe my anxiety. Maybe I become too dependent upon it. Maybe I just need to say, you know what, no substance is going to control me. I'm going to refrain from it. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, Paul talks about we need to be mindful of others. The issue for them wasn't alcohol, but it was the eating of meat. And he says, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, even though he had the freedom to, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. We should take that same principle and apply it to this area of our lives as well. Here's another question. Um, Should we celebrate or participate in pagan holidays? I uh, always get this question uh, oftentimes around Halloween, And uh, because I I don't necessarily hide it, we we take our kids out uh, trick-or-treating, we get to meet our neighbors, and I always, always, always have somebody message me or email me and say, how could you as a pastor celebrate Halloween? And I would just say, I'm not celebrating it. See, the larger question is how we should, as Christ followers, interact with the culture in which we live. So John chapter 15 says that we should be in the world, but not of it. Like, we don't retreat from the world. We don't run back to our holy huddles. We don't hide in the storm shelters. We are in and among the world, just like Jesus came to be in and among us. Matthew chapter 5 says that we should be salt and light. Salt doesn't do any good if it stays in the salt shaker. Light doesn't do any good if it stays behind the door. Jude chapter 1 says to us that we should snatch others from the fire. And I love that passage because it, to me, describes somebody who's on mission with Jesus trying to depopulate hell. And you cannot snatch others from the fire if you've kept your distance. In fact, on my gravestone one day, I just wanted to say Aaron Brockett, he smelled like smoke. Not the cigarette kind, the fire kind, right? Just that I was like, I was so close to the flames, right there just trying to rescue people, trying to depopulate hell. Now, with all that said, there is a difference between celebrating something and participating in it, and you can participate without glorifying anything that's demonic. I would say there's three words that we gotta remember. We we can either reject the things in culture, we can redeem them, or we can restore them. And so here's the question that I found, to, to answer it, Frankly, it's a matter of conscience. Some of you would say, this violates my conscience. Then by all means, man, don't, 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 don't participate in it at all. Maybe you've got your reasons for that and your story behind it. It's also not a legalistic thing where we look down at others who do. Here's where I land on it, and this is how it resolved itself for me. I just simply asked myself years ago, where would Jesus be on Halloween night? Would, something tells me that Jesus wouldn't be inside with his lights off playing Bible Pictionary and watching Veggie Tales? Nothing wrong with that. It's just that something tells me. You can send your emails to Anderson at tpcc. <laughs> now, like something tells me that Jesus would go, you mean to tell me that all my neighbors have come outside and they're going door to door? I'm going out to meet them. And I'm going to actually rub shoulders with them. All right. Here's the next question. What makes premarital sex and porn so bad? You know, I'm really, this This question is like in the top three. This got asked over and over and over again, even more so in the last couple of weeks, uh, a lot from young single uh, people, like teenagers and uh, young adults. And I'm so glad that they felt courageous enough to reach out to me as their pastor to ask me this question. Listen, it is so important as Christ followers that we get a good answer to this question because uh, largely the culture has moved on. And what I mean by that is that for us to suggest that you should save sex for marriage, the culture largely hears that as old-fashioned and unrealistic. Like there's no way. Like there's no way that we could do that, maybe for all kinds of reasons. And I would even say that that is the mindset of even of many Christ followers within the church. And maybe we grew up hearing that sex should be saved for marriage and Maybe you asked mom and dad, or you asked your Sunday school teacher, or you asked that person you respected, well, okay, I hear you, why? And you were never really given a good answer. It's just like, well, because. (laughs) Just because, you know, God wants you to, and the Bible says so, and it's just like, okay, I hear you. I think I can even understand that. But it's not really a good enough answer to convince me, because sexual pleasure is so intense... That it will always override any sort of conviction on it that we might have, especially if we don't have a good answer to the question. Not to mention our culture today has largely, and we just see it more and more and more, disconnected what we do with our physical bodies from our souls and the essence of who we are. They just see it as another biological desire that since it's a natural biological desire, then we should fulfill it. We have every right to fulfill it, and to do so would be cruel. So it's kind of like, well, you know, it's, like, it's not any different than being hungry. It's like, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. I'm sleepy, I'm going to uh, take a nap. I, I, I desire sexual intimacy. I'm going to go fulfill that with whoever and whenever and however I want to. And it would be cruel to suggest otherwise. Therefore, if we say that you should save sex to the co- to until the, you've made a covenant in a marriage relationship and anything outside of that is sin, that, in other words, it's missing God's best for your in my life, the culture hears that as crazy talk. And so, why? Well, if I could, let me attempt to try to answer the why behind that question. The reason why we should listen to God on this primarily is because God is the one who thought up sex. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. God, way to go. Like, that's awesome, right? (laughs) Right? Like God's like, I'm going to design this thing that's going to work like this, and it's going to bring this intense amount of pleasure and fulfillment to you. And I think at times God's like up there going, hey, whoa, that was my idea. You guys have hijacked this from me, and you've actually made it to look like I think that this is dirty or that this is like a wrong thing. God designed it. And if God designed it, then he knows how it works best, and he knows how it might hurt us. And just think of all the ways in which we disregard God on this and how it's introduced all kinds of ways in which sex has brought about debilitating pain into our lives. See, sexual intimacy is an expression or an illustration of God's covenantal love. That word covenantal is just a promise for his people. He created it in Genesis 2, which means that it is his idea. Therefore, he knows how it works at its optimal best. It's like for me. I did not design or make the truck that I drive Someone else did, and they gave me an owner's manual, and it's in the glove box. And if I really want to know how it should run best and how it could be optimal, I'm going to pull that out, and I'm going to read it. I'm not just going to go on the field because I drive it every day. I'm going to actually go to the designers. And in the same way, God has said that he's designed it for three primary reasons. Here's the first one. He designed it because he's a good, good father. He designed it as a gift for our joy and our pleasure that is not meant to be selfish, but selfless. And so this is why, and I had this question come in the last couple of weeks from some young people, and I'm so glad that they did. They asked about masturbation and porn. And I would just say that this is why those two things are unhealthy, because masturbation and porn are ultimately self centered, they are addictive, and they set up unrealistic and even harmful expectations for your spouse or who the person who might be your spouse one day. And some of you may say, well, I'm not married and I'm single right now and it doesn't really matter. And I would just simply say this. I don't know if you'll get married one day in the future, but you might. And the time to start working on your marriage is not when you get married. It's now. Because what makes a healthy marriage are healthy people. And you get healthy whenever you don't have that other person in your life just yet. Here's the second thing. God designed it. Uh, for procreation, that's pretty self-explanatory. I won't spend any time on it. If you need a further explanation, come see me after. Number three, I have flannel graphs in there. It's awesome. All right, so um, number three, to to illustrate who God is, this is what we miss. To illustrate who God is, as well as the covenantal love He has for us as His people, God uses the description of male and female in a marriage relationship to describe his relationship with the church. It starts in Genesis, it's a thread that runs all through the scripture, and it culminates in Revelation. In fact, my favorite depiction of this is in Hosea. Uh, Old Testament prophets, God would give them a word to then say to the people, in Hosea, God gives Hosea a painful experience to live out that the people can watch. Some of you know the story. Hosea was told by God to go down into the red light district of town to find a prostitute. And he said, I want you to marry her and take her home as your wife. Her name was Gomer, which is very unfortunate. All right. I mean, that's just (laughs) cruel right there. It's like a prostitute named Gomer. I thank you. So my apologies to all the ladies named Gomer. All right. So. Hosea brings her home. They have a beautiful life together. She's, she's remade. She's, she's experienced his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And he loves her, not as somebody he found who was a prostitute. He speaks in dignity into her life. And they start a family together. And then one day, Hosea comes home from work, and he sees that she's not there. And he knows she's not at the store. He gets a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. And he goes back down to the red-light district of town where he found her years before, and he sees her in the arms of another man and he's heartbroken and he's angry as anyone would be. And God says to Hosea, now you know how I feel. Because this is how my people, what they've done to me, and it's what they continue to do to me over and over and over again. So I'll tell you what you do, Hosea, you go back, you buy her from her pimp, you bring her home and you forgive her just as I've forgiven my people. That's the description God uses to describe his love for you and me. And then we see this thread all the way through Revelation And the reason why male and female in a marriage relationship, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, let me just read you one verse that says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I want you to see here that there's a singularity to humanity, but there's also a plurality. Male and female, we are one, but we are two. We are similar, but we are distinct. We are equal, yet we are very different that our physical bodies even illustrate. And when a male and female make a covenant promise to each other and they come together in sexual intimacy, that's the ultimate pinnacle of how we image God. In other words, our bodies were designed to display who God is and his love for us. And it's all over Genesis 1. Complementary pairs of things that God creates that are similar, but they're different, and they work together to image God. We see it in the heavens and the earth. God created light and darkness. God created day and night. God created fish and fowl, water and land. Can you imagine a world where it was all light and no dark? Or all dark and no light? Can you imagine a world with all water and no land or all land and no water? Could you imagine a world with all logic and no emotion? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm married to him, right? Some of you. (laughs) Send your emails to G. Anderson at. (laughs) Can you imagine a world with all emotion and no logic? Right. These things are similar, but they're different. And they actually work together to image something. And God created the heavens and the earth, but the culmination of his creation was male and female. And he said, this is the ultimate way in which you image me. Different things working in harmony to display the glory of God. God didn't just tell us. He gave us an active example to show us. Sexual intimacy between a man and a woman within the promise of a committed marriage is designed to display the glory of God. That's why. A great resource on this that you might want to check out is a book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. I love this book. Nancy is a former agnostic. She's a scholar. She does the best job of unpacking the theology behind human sexuality I've ever read. It's great. Uh, next question. Uh, what is the point and the purpose of prayer? If God already knows how it's going to work out, then why should I pray? Well, I bet you're fun to be friends with. Um, <laughs> do we really need to talk? Because you already know, right? Uh, Let me just say this. Great question. Uh, I would answer it this way. Jesus prayed, and he was fully God and perfect and sinless, and he already knew God's mind. So if Jesus prayed, I should probably pray too. All right, so there's that. The next thing is that just what I said, I mean, uh, prayer is more than just getting something from God that you want. And you treat it like that, you're always going to be disappointed because God won't give you everything that you want. The point of prayer isn't to change God or to make him aware of things. The point of prayer is to change you and to make you aware of things. And so you continue to go to him. And I would just say this. uh, If you're praying and praying and praying and it seems like God is silent, start listening more than talk. Just go to God and say, I'm not going to say anything. Because obviously I've been spending all my time talking and I don't feel close to you. It's probably because I'm talking over you. And so let me just take some time to listen. Next question What is the uh, unpardonable sin? How do we grieve? How do we sin or grieve the Holy Spirit? This is a good question. Uh, This is oftentimes referred to as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, like if you have a church background. And really, here's what this is this is the removal of any desire to be reconciled to Jesus. God is the one that puts that desire into all of us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So, all that Uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means, is a hardening of the heart to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like when communication begins to break down between you and your spouse or you and a good friend, and you're not talking, you don't feel connected, your heart grows hard to each other, and it becomes harder to connect. And so the way that anybody responds to Jesus is through the prompting of the Spirit. If you're a Christian today, it's because God prompted you. God put that conviction within you. Now, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we start ignoring him so much. In other words, that still small voice says, hey, you need to go there and do that. Nope, I'm not going to do that. Hey, you need to stop doing this and start doing that. No, I don't want to do that. You start ignoring it so much that the Holy Spirit, you, you, you begin to become hardened to his voice. You no longer recognize him anymore. See, the only unpardonable sin is refusing to let God pardon you by his grace And it's not that God's grace runs out, it's that your desire for God's grace runs out. And let me, those of you that are maybe worried today that you have committed the unpardonable sin, let me just put you at ease. If you're worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, take a deep breath. You haven't, because if you had, you wouldn't be worried about it. Because your heart would be hard. There, that was easy. All right, so... uh, There's the next one. How can I trust the Bible? Where should I start? Uh, Doesn't the Bible advocate slavery and the mistreatment of women? That last question there, our culture has stated as a fact that the Bible does advocate slavery and the mistreatment of women, so much so that we've just come to believe it. And I wonder how many of us have actually dug in to really investigate it on our own. Let me say this. I could spend a whole series on this question, so I know that I'm not going to do it justice, but let me just say this. It may not be enough to convince you, but let me say it. The Bible does not advocate slavery or the mistreatment of women. It is in there. It mentions it. It talks about it, but it doesn't advocate it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't encourage it. It doesn't command it. It doesn't cheer it on. In fact, I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says in the Old Testament that uh, when the Bible mentions slavery, if you actually play it out, it shows the consequences of the people who owned the slaves, and it's never good. The, the Old Testament is jacked up. That's why we need Jesus. <laughs> and so Jesus comes along. He says, I've come to set the captives free. And another thing we need to remember is that first century slavery was often known as bondservants. Bondservants were oftentimes like their equivalent of like employment. So it's, it's, it's not like our uh, American history with slavery, which is dishonorable and disdainful that we need to repent of. Um, and so it it'll oftentimes talk about bondservants. And a bondservant was somebody who said, I want to actually be with this person and work for them. And they would actually get their ears pierced with like this like uh, wooden like earring thing. And they would say, I'm your bondservant. The Bible never advocates the mistreatment of women. Same kind of principle. We see how it plays out when that happens. The first century pagan world, they mistreated women. They treated them like property. And the Christ followers were some of the first ones to offer dignity to women. Jesus offered dignity to women. He was always going and speaking hope and life into them. Let me say this when it comes to the Bible. Some of you are like, I don't know if the Bible can be trusted. Wasn't it just put together by human beings? Yes, put together by human beings who were inspired by God. And I listen, I I love the Bible. I've been studying it for over 30 years. I believe it to not be, it is not easy in places and there are still things that, perplex me yet at the same time when I have sincerely sought answers then God has led me to those answers maybe not in the way that I would always want but he has and I would say that I believe the bible is perfect I believe that it is inspired by God I love what 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. With that said, you've got to read it correctly. Yeah, go ahead and clap for that. Just, all right, there, there we go. <laughs> you've got to read it correctly. And I've heard people butcher it due to the applica- um, interpretation. So here's what I mean. The Bible is written in different genres, and you read different genres differently to arrive at different meanings. So the Bible is written as history and poetry and prophecy and letters and I've got apocryphal stuff at the very end. And so you don't read a comic book the same way you would poetry, and so you've got to understand what the what the meaning is, and you've got to understand the meta narrative. The meta narrative of scripture, it's not a science book, it's not a rule book, it's not a history book, it's a love letter from God saying, This is who I am, this is who you are, this is what went wrong, this is what I did about it, this is what I will one day do. And you read that through the whole thread of God's word. With all that said, I this might shock some of you. I am not a Christ follower because of the Bible. My faith does not, is not a house of cards based upon the Bible. You want to know why? Because the first Christians responded to Jesus before the Bible was ever put together. 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus on Pentecost before the Bible was ever put together, which means the core of our faith was not necessarily uh, uh, the Bible. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why I'm a Christ follower. That's why I'm a Christian. Last few questions here. Does it really matter what you believe? Just as long as you sincerely believe it, how do we know Christianity is the religion among all other religions? Yes, it matters because not all religions teach the same thing. They teach dramatically different things. Just study them. Here's a form of it. Most other religions say, uh, here's the things you need to do and to be in order to be reconciled, and hopefully you do enough. If I could just summarize it, that's where they all fall into the category. Christianity is the only religion that says Jesus did it for you. Rest in him. Christianity is not a religion. A religion is man's effort to get to God. God. Uh, God said, no, here's my effort to get to you. Um, Religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. And there isn't anything that you can do to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Not because this way is superior, but because this is the only solution that is relevant to our situation. Because you and I can't save ourselves. Jesus did it for us. (laughs) Should we clap? I don't know. (laughs) All right, uh, are we obligated to tithe? Obligated, no. Invited to be generous? Absolutely. I always get a little bit heartbroken when Christians want to fight over this. Uh, Like, you know, how much should we give and what should we give and all that? Because I'm just like, man, here's the thing. Um, God didn't tithe Jesus, Think about that for a minute. I'll give you 10% of Jesus. Right? He he gave us 100% of his first and his best. Right? So we are saved by grace. Now, the Old Testament incorporated a 10% tithe, which was actually, it was more like 30% because of agricultural offerings. But God says, no, okay, let's just limit it down to 10% as the starting line of generosity, not the finish line. Why? Because money is God's chief competition on the throne of my heart. And God says, wherever your treasure goes, your heart will follow. And God just says, I just want you to trust me. And I know this is really hard. And I know that actually this would be a moving scale if I just told you to be generous. So let me just give you a number, 10%. Why 10%? Well, I think, my theory, is because it's not enough to break you, but it's enough to get your attention. And God says, start there and trust me with this and see what I might do. Um, Here's the last few questions here. How can I know if I'm really saved? Do you believe Jesus has accomplished everything sufficient for your salvation? Yes or no? If yes, good. Next question. Uh, Therefore, will you go where he tells you to go and do what he tells you to do? Yes or no? If the answer is yes to both of those, you're saved. Romans chapter, some of you are like, well, what about? No, (laughs) Romans 10, verse 9 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Baptism, then, is your first step of obedience to that, where you say, I'm not ashamed of God, I'm going to go public, I'm going to die die into a watery grave, come up as a new creation in Christ. It has nothing to do with what you could bring to the table. God brought it all. You just respond. Here's the other one. Thank you, three people. Can you, can you lose your salvation? A lot of people want to know this. Lose like your car keys? No. Lose like your marriage? Probably a lot of us know people where they've lost their marriage, and maybe we're afraid of that happening with us and God. Here's the one big difference. You're married to Jesus, and he's perfect. And where you fall short, he doesn't. And Jesus is the one that seals your salvation. And Jesus Jesus keeps you in the secure grasp of his loving grip. grip. And so you don't need to keep praying the prayer of salvation out of fear. Some of you who have been here for a while have heard my story where I just kept baptizing myself in the neighborhood pool every summer. Because I just wanted to make sure. All right? I was just like, and uh, I got really good at it. And so... You don't need to keep doing that. You don't need to keep getting dunked in the tank every time we opened it up because your salvation isn't dependent upon anything that you can do, but it's your obedience to what he has done for you. Now, we do have to be careful of a hardening of the heart. If your disposition is, I I gave my life to Jesus, I can do it and live my life however I want, that's a bad sign. You know you're saved when you always feel conviction with hope. You know you're saved when you always go, you know what, there's something I need to repent of every single day. Because that's the Spirit of God keeping your heart soft. Here's the last question. What about those who have never heard or who are unable to respond to Jesus? And a lot of people use this question to kind of say, you know, it hardly seems fair to me. Why would God send a whole bunch of people to hell that never even heard about Jesus? Or maybe they're, they're uh, physically incapacitated. They, they can't make this response. What about them? And I guess I would just say there's maybe two ways I could answer Romans chapter 1 says that the universe, as well as our physical bodies, give us all the evidence that we need. It cries out that there is a God. So all are without excuse. John 3, 17 says that God doesn't want to condemn. He wants to save. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says God is patient. He does not want anyone to perish, but he wants all to have life. In other words, <laughs> in other words, God's got this and you may say well what about all the people that have never heard of Jesus or haven't responded to Jesus and I would just very lovingly say what about them and what does that have to do with you like you do know and you have heard see the question of Jesus is the most important question that you will ever ask and you cannot ask it for a friend you can only ask it for yourself and today, I just want you to know, unless anyone hasn't heard, that Jesus is the Son of God. There is a God who loves you. He created you. The world has fallen in sin. He sent his Son to reconcile you back to him. And when you place your faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior, God says, man, you're mine. And today, you can respond to that. And I know that you maybe have, maybe even all, everything that I just did. You're just like, well, you just stirred up a whole bunch of other questions. Or maybe, you know what, I've, I've seen Christians who actually made a mess of things. Yeah, me too. I have as well. Just because somebody has followed Jesus poorly does not mean that Jesus isn't worth following. Stop looking at them and look to Jesus. And maybe today you just need to say, you know what, I'm just gonna come open-handed to him and I'm just gonna open up my heart and respond to him as Lord and Savior. It's as simple as you sitting right where you're sitting responding to this prayer that I just wanna lead you in. And so would you you at all of our campuses just close your eyes just for some, some focus and some privacy and if you're ready, just make this prayer your own. Lord God, I come to you and I don't have it all figured out. And I've tried to figure it out and I've tried to do life in my own terms and all that it's brought me is just more disappointment and frustration. And today I'm just ready to surrender. And I've still got more questions, God, but instead of trying to get all the answers to my questions before I come to you, I choose to come to you and then pursue these they answer to these questions with you, not against you. And so today I just come to you as a sinner. I recognize it. I confess it. I repent of it. And I want Jesus to be Lord and Savior of my life because I believe that you have already done everything sufficient for my salvation. And if I can trust you as Savior, I'm gonna trust you as Lord over all of it over my money, over my thoughts, over my marriage, over my kids, over my relationship, over my desires. God, I give it to you. I want to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. I'm confident that there's at least one person in every room that claimed that prayer can we just celebrate with them right now? Just, man, if that's you, way to go. And if so, we want to hear from you. Man, just make yourself known. We want to follow up with you. We can talk about baptism. We can talk about what your next steps are. But, man, here's what I want to do at all of our campuses. I, I just want us to come together and at the conclusion of this series, and I just want us to, to, to worship in such a way that reflects the fact that we know what God did to save us. I'll be honest with you, man. Some some weekends I don't, I'm not feeling it when I walk in here, and sometimes I look out across the room and go, man. I'm a little bit intimidated to preach today because they don't seem like they're in a very good mood. Like they, they kind of seem a little stoic and even a little angry. And, and uh, I would just even say that if you realize that what Jesus has done to save you, maybe your heart needs to remind your face. You know, could I just say that to me? Like it's just like, wow, like, like I walk in here angry, man. I, don't tell me you don't know how to worship. I went to a sporting event this last week and a concert, and they were worshiping their faces off, and it was a game and it was a concert. We can do better. We should be pace setters in this, all right? So let's stand to our feet. Let's worship together. Come on, man, let's do it.